We have now uh, come to this section of uh, Matthew's gospel where we now are going to uh, see that our king has come, but there's actually a kingdom really that has really been preached. Jesus, remember his first public words when he started his ministry was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we know that in John's gospel, in in John chapter 3, when Jesus met up with Nicodemus, a religious man, he told Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see or you will never enter into the kingdom of God. And so when we think of God's kingdom, obviously we think of something that is future, a kingdom that is coming. But when Jesus was preaching out there to the people, it was, and even John the Baptist, it was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And John was really preparing them for the king that had come. The... uh, kingdom of heaven that we see in Matthew's gospel here. Actually, Matthew is really the only one that uses it in, in, in that way. He's, he refers to it as the kingdom of heaven, where the other gospels refer to it as the kingdom of God. And it's not really known why exactly. Some have thought that Matthew, because of his audience, being a, a Jewish audience, that maybe uh, he refrained from the use of the kingdom of God because they were uh, they got real uh, sketchy about using God's name, and so he may have referred or substituted the kingdom of heaven. We don't know, but it's it's really in Matthew's gospel. We actually find it some thirty times in this gospel. But there's uh, one commentator, one pastor. Uh, that, that, that said this in regards to what we're going to be covering this morning, the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to his words. If we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the only begotten Son of God, and that he came into this world and went to the cross of Calvary and died for our sins and rose again in order to justify us and give us life anew and prepare us for heaven, if we really believe that, There is only one inevitable deduction, namely that he is entitled to the whole of our lives without any limit whatsoever. That was written by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think as believers, I know that God wants to go further in my life. I know that he wants to go deeper and further in your life. And the only thing that hinders that is me and you. Because God wants to take us further. Sometimes we get afraid of going further with the Lord. We don't know what that means. But you know, when we really contemplate what Christ has done, what we just read there, God, that I'd give my whole life, every bit of me, I'm yours. What I have is yours. My only hindrance is me or you that keeps us from going further. These 
three chapters that we're going to be covering here in Matthew, they've been referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And we might call them, and there's different ways that people have described this particular uh, message that Jesus gave to his disciples. As a matter of fact, the Sermon on the Mount has been uh, digested and, and, and put out by so many different people in different ways that sometimes people have been a little bit confused over what Jesus was really saying and what his intent was. But some have said that these are the principles of the kingdom. Now we've made and I've made a big emphasis upon Jesus Christ coming as the prophesied Messiah, the King of Israel, that he had come. And Matthew makes a great effort to to make that point clear. Our King has come. But these, uh, the kingdom and Jesus being here on earth, because the King was here, really the kingdom was at hand because the king had really arrived. And so I I really like this whole way of saying it, the principles of the kingdom. But one of the things that I could caution you on when we go through these next three chapters is that the Sermon on the Mount, I don't see them as a list of laws or a list of commandments for Christians. That's not really what Jesus is trying to get across in here. I really believe what he's trying to convey to his disciples and to us is that this is a list of character qualities. That we, uh, as Christians, these are the things that should be seen in us. This is how we should live and not live as believers in this world. The um, next, really, three chapters have also been called the Declaration of the Kingdom. And what we see in these chapters, really, and I broke it down into really 20 different lessons that Jesus gave to his disciples on that day. I I actually believe that the Sermon on the Mount that we call it, it was probably a regular teaching of our Lord. It doesn't tell us that in Scripture, but I believe that what we are reading in these three chapters is probably something either in portion or at all of it that probably the Lord had brought up more than one time. These teachings that um, Jesus is going to give us, uh, they should all be characteristics of who we are as believers. It's what sets us apart from all the other religions in the world. And I believe that what we're going to see in these three chapters, he's going to give us some practical ways of how we should live as Christians and, and also how we shouldn't live. In chapter 5 in your Bibles, you can see that from verse 3 to verse 12, we find what has been referred to as the Beatitudes. And these Beatitudes are what set the foundation, I believe, for everything that's going to follow in the, in, the, in the rest of these three chapters. And so when we're looking at the Beatitudes, they're very important. They're very, um, for us to be able to grasp them and to be able to take them to heart and to begin to live what we are seeing there just in these Beatitudes is what really prepares us and sets the foundations Foundation, excuse me, for the rest. We read uh, really 
as we go through these, or not just the Beatitudes, but this sermon of Jesus, we have to read it in light of the backdrop uh, that the scribes and the Pharisees were always there. They were always the ones that were the example to the people of what a religious person should look like. And when the people saw the scribes and the Pharisees, it'd be like the people today that look at the Pope or they look at some religious figure and they hold him up in high esteem. And so the backdrop for all of this is that there is the scribes and the Pharisees that weren't always, they weren't always those great examples to follow. In verse 20, you can see in your Bible, Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a a pretty strong statement. Uh, For somebody to even hear those words that had a lot of awe and respect for the religious figures that they saw, they would have maybe thought, what hope is there for me? I mean, uh, surely I'm never going to rise above that. The scribes and the Pharisees. But look in your Bibles at verse 21 of chapter uh, 5. Look what it says in the beginning. You have heard that it was said of those of old. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Look at verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said. Look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a a tooth. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Uh, Look at uh, chapter 6 and verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. And then in verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. Verse 16. It says, moreover, when you fast... Do not be like the hypocrites. Chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you will be not judged. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Do you get what was being said? Do you see what's happening through these? In the backdrop of these scribes and the Pharisees, that's how Jesus is preaching, really, or teaching, I should say, this message to his disciples. I believe that... As we go through all of the Gospels, it's really the backdrop through all of them. The scribes and the Pharisees always really brought about something amongst the disciples and even with the Lord that they had to contend with. 
As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, we're going to see these teachings of our Lord. Uh, One of the teachings continues in verse 13 of chapter 5, when Jesus is going to tell them that we're to be salt and light to this world. He also goes on to teach them about Christ fulfilling the law. He says, murder begins in the heart. Adultery is in the heart. Marriage is sacred and binding. Jesus forbids oaths. Jesus exhorted his disciples to go the extra mile. He also told them that you're to love your enemies. And then when you get to chapter 5, verse 48, look what it says. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do we have any perfect people here this morning? Here's the Lord saying that you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we have any perfect people here this morning, stand up. I mean, I've never met one. I'm not perfect. You're not. But here's the Lord saying that we ought to be perfect. Chapter 6 starts with doing charitable deeds. He gives them a lesson on prayer and fasting, laying up treasures in heaven. He talks about a good eye and a bad eye. He says that you cannot serve God in riches. He says, do not worry. And then in chapter 7, he says, do not judge. And he also says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He tells them there's the narrow way. He says, you will know them by their fruits. And then lastly, he says, build on the rock. That's the 20 really small messages within these three chapters that our Lord gave to his disciples. But let me ask you all a question. Notice that I said y'all. I'm trying to get that down. Let me ask you all something. Are you able to fulfill the things that I just read? That list that I gave you of those 20 little short messages, if we could call them, are you able to live up to that? You know, I don't think that any one of us, when we read that, that we say, I've done all those. I'm doing those things. We see our inadequacies and our inability really to live up to those things and to do it perfectly as my heavenly Father is perfect. It makes me think, there's no way I can do it. But why would the Lord give these types of teachings if we were incapable of living these things out? It's kind of a dilemma, isn't it? On one hand, we're exhorted to do them. On the other hand, we're thinking, but I really, I can't fulfill this. If you're a born-again Christian, then I believe that it's possible for us to read these things and to allow God to work in us and change us and to begin to live these things out in our life. But we can't do it on our own strength, can we? That's where we go wrong. 
when we try to read this list and we try to think, well, you know, this is what Christians ought to do. And we try to work it out in the efforts of our flesh. And we get frustrated and we think, wait, I can't really do that. That's for the believer. For a non-believer, did you know that it's impossible? It's absolutely impossible for a non-believer to live up to what I just read. They can't do it. Uh, they, They really have no capacity to do it within themselves. They can try, but they can't do it. Not in a way that would please God. But you see, we have an advantage. You have the Holy Spirit of God that lives and dwells inside of you. And God enables you and empowers you and gives you what you need to be able to see change of heart and mind, to actually be able to grow in these areas. We ended last week in chapter 3, verse 25. Look in your Bibles. We read that a great multitude was following after Jesus from all these various areas in, in, in the area of, of Israel. They were following after Jesus. They heard of his miracles. They heard what was going on, and they traveled. And so Jesus began to have quite a following. It's referred to as a great multitude. But now look at chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus here, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Now, this mountain that you can see there, I I don't necessarily look at that like it's a mountain. It's really a hillside to me, coming from California, but... It's a, it's a hillside, but it's referred to as a mountain or a mount. Uh, what you're seeing there in the picture is really a, uh, believed to be the area. Remember, we talked about Capernaum last week, and you can see Capernaum there. Uh, that, well, actually, you can't see Capernaum. That's down over the hill by the water. What you're seeing here is uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, where it's believed in this general area is where Jesus would have retreated to quite often, possibly, and it's where he had given this sermon on the mount, overlooking there the Sea of Galilee. But I want to make a distinction this morning from verse 1 here about the multitudes that we read that are following Jesus and the disciples that are following after Jesus. We're told that they were both followers of Jesus. But there is a difference between the multitude and the disciples. You see, you can have a lot of people that follow after Jesus, but not everybody is following after Jesus with pure motives. As a matter of fact, lots of the multitude, I believe, at times were following Jesus for what they could get from him. They were looking maybe for the next meal. They were looking to be healed. Nothing wrong with that, but a lot of times that was their intention. They followed me for what they could really get and receive. But you know what? It's really no different in the church today, is it? 
There are people today that follow after churches. They follow after men. They follow after different reasons why they come along because of what it will do for them. What I can get out of this. Do you know that there's people that come to church that they, their sole purpose really is to come there and network with people so that it will advance their earthly business here in, in this world. They have motives and reasons why they follow after religion and, and follow after in the name of Christ. This is not the forum for that. This is not the place we come here to hear from the Lord. But notice what it says, that it says that his disciples, Jesus' disciples, they came to him. Now, we don't know that the multitude that were following after Jesus, we don't know if they were still there uh, around, uh, that they were still able to hear this message that Jesus was teaching. I would say uh, that it's very probable uh, that that they probably did hear. But it didn't necessarily mean that they could all take it in. If we look at uh, chapter 7, at the end it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And so it's very probable that the multitudes that were there, they were there also. But I believe when Jesus... Uh, was there and his disciples came to him that he specifically was giving this message to them. The word disciple, uh, by definition, is a learner. Somebody that learns. But sometimes people leave it at that. What's a disciple? What's a learner? And they leave it at that. But you know what? There's lots of people that were called disciples of various teachers Jesus even had people that were disciples that followed after him, but they followed at a distance. The disciples uh, is a, a term that could be used for somebody that is a learner, but I'm going to broaden that a little bit because I believe that a true disciple of Jesus Christ is not only a learner of Jesus Christ, but he is learning with the intent upon following after the one that he's learning from. That makes the difference. That's what separates really a disciple and maybe a true disciple of Jesus Christ. There were various religious leaders within the day that had their disciples. But you see, Jesus here had these 12 or these men that he had called out and they were called to follow him, and they did. And these were his disciples. And these were the men that he was going to sit down with and really give these principles of the kingdom to. They were going to be important. These disciples were later going to be called apostles. Apostles are ones that are sent out. First they learned. First Jesus instructed them. He trained them. And then he sent them out. And they were disciples. And they went out into this world with the gospel. Remember last week when Jesus was in the synagogue of Nazareth. We read that he stood up. He stood up in the midst of the people. And one of the attendants there came and handed him the scroll of Isaiah. And he began to preach to the people in the synagogue. Reading from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And then we're told that Jesus sat down. 
But here we read that when Jesus went up onto this mountain, we read that he sat down and his disciples came to him and then he began to teach them. You know that the customary way that a teacher, in the Lord's day anyway, that a teacher uh, would be typically the one that would be sitting. And those that were hearing would stand up. And I think we've got that all backwards today. I mean, I should be sitting and you should be standing the whole service. So who messed that one up? You know, you're all relaxed out there and I'm having to move around and stand up. That's not the way it was. Here's Jesus on this mountain and he's up there sitting and his disciples come to him. Years ago, I think 2007 maybe it was, we went to Israel, Kathy and myself, and we actually sat right there on that hill and overlooked the Sea of Galilee. And we had one of the people on our team that went up to a place. It was actually a stone that you could sit on and a place to lay your Bible. And this person actually read three chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, straight reading it with no commentary to our whole tour group. And that was an awesome feeling. Just looking out over the Sea of Galilee as somebody's reading to us the Sermon on the Mount without stopping, just going right through it. And you're just sitting there, wow. Just think how this would have been as the Lord taught. And I really believe that, you know, I might, who knows how many weeks it'll take me to get through the here, the, this, these three cha- chapters here. But I believe that when Jesus taught it, he probably just naturally just got up there and he just began to speak and say these things. And the, maybe a lot of this didn't even, they didn't get it all. It, it would take some time to get it, just like it takes time for us to get it. But he probably just got up there and just began to speak to them these things without some long, lengthy commentary on everything, like I'm doing. But they, they, were, they were probably, they had to get it in time. We told, we're told in verse 2 that he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying... Now, something I see that's interesting here is that Matthew didn't need to say, then he opened his mouth, did he? He could have just said his disciples came to him and he began to teach. Matthew writes, then he opened his mouth. You know, and what I, the only thing I could say with that, what it seems to me is that Matthew, in writing this gospel, I believe he's really preparing us for what Jesus is about to say. Remember, I shared with you how important These three chapters are in the teaching of Jesus. It's why we really need to get it, what he's saying here. Have you ever been sitting and waiting for somebody to come up to teach? You really really love this teacher. You love to hear him. It may not be me. It could be somebody else. But you just love this teacher, and you almost feel like you're sitting on the edge of your seat. I I can't wait to hear what they're going to have to say. And, you know, and, and that's almost the feeling that I get here. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach. But, you know, we also know those times that we're sitting there and we're not on the edge of our seat and we're just thinking, you know, I wish that that teacher would shut his mouth. <laughs> I wish he would stop. And that happens too. But here's Jesus opening his mouth and these disciples, I believe, probably anticipating what is he going to say what does he have to share with us I shared last week 
that this could be and probably is one of the most important teachings of our Lord. The kingdom rules. The things that we are reading here, they, they all are the most important things for us to learn. It's how we should be as Christians, how we should live in comparison to the scribes and the Pharisees in the example that they were giving. From verses 3 to 10, Jesus gives his disciples really eight, we'll call them foundational truths. Now, some people take and they, uh, they give nine to this. They say nine, some people say eight, um, whatever one you want to do. I'm going to go with the eight right now, and I have a reason for it. Some people put it at nine because of what it says in verse 11 and 12, uh, where it gives another blessed. But if you were to divide eight of these Beatitudes in half, the first four, you can get from this that they appear to be directed towards God. And then if you look at the, uh, the next four, they're really directed towards man. And that's all the way it always is. It's first this way with God and then what we do with that with one another. And so I believe that that is kind of the order that we see here in these Beatitudes. How many of you have a red-letter Bible? A number of you do. If you have a red-letter Bible, then you're going to notice that from verse 3 all the way to the end of chapter 7, that it's all red letters. Notice there's no black letters in there. That's because Jesus is doing all the speaking. This is really... uh, Jesus here having a, not a dialogue, he's not discussing these things with the disciples as much as he's having a monologue. He's the speaker, he's the one that's teaching them right now. They're just there listening to the words of our Lord. But notice that Jesus starts each of these Beatitudes. He starts with the word blessed which can also be translated, and maybe some of your Bibles read happy or fortunate. Uh, We see in our world today a world that really is seeking happiness in all the wrong places. Would you agree? They're looking for it everywhere they can get it. Give me happiness Give me contentment. Give me those things that are, that are going to make for an easy life. I want to be happy. And what Jesus says here in these Beatitudes is, do you really want to know what true happiness is? Do you really want to know how fortunate and how happy you can be? Then learn these things. Because this is what brings about really, that true blessedness. Jesus says, the disciple who is blessed is the disciple who understands and he, pers- or he pursues the things of the kingdom. And that would be the question we could ask ourselves this morning. Even as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, are we pursuing those things? It's one thing to know it theologically. It's another thing to study it and read it. And then it's another thing to say, I'm actually on a pursuit of these things in my own personal life. 
We're only going to go to verse 6 today just so that no one's nervous. But in verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He starts, I believe, this foundation of laying this foundation by saying happy or blessed are the poor in spirit. I want you to know this is not speaking of God's spirit, but our spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, speaking about the spirit, our spirit, which is a way really that Jesus is given a metaphorical way really to, uh, by say, uh, giving a foundation to these uh, disciples that he's really talking about spiritual poverty is what he's talking about here. Poor in spirit is spiritual poverty. Jesus is saying this is where it begins in your life and in my life. It begins with you becoming and realizing your depravity before God. Realizing how poor you are in spirit. Your spiritual poverty. You know, some of us don't necessarily look at it that way. Poor in spirit. You know, no one becomes a child of God unless first they see their need of a Savior. Does anybody become a Christian if they don't need a Savior? They don't become a Christian, do they? But it's equally true that no child of God is able to grow and mature and move forward until he sees his spiritual poverty. Unless you see that, unless you're able to say to yourself, I'm spiritually poor. I'm needy for you, Lord. I see myself for who I am. Apart from you, I'm spiritually bankrupt. The prophet Isaiah, he said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He saw himself in light of the Lord. He sees himself. Poor in spirit really is opposite of being proud, isn't it? That pride that's in our life and it's in all of us, it just is in different degrees. (laughs) It depends how much we're willing to submit it to God, but pride is there. And poor in spirit is opposite being proud. It's like a beggar. You've seen the beggars out on the street. It's like, a, it's like a beggar begging for food. That's the way we should be. I'm poor in spirit. I'm bankrupt, Lord. Apart from you, I'm humbled before you. I'm wretched. I mean, pride doesn't let you say that of yourself. I'm all right. I'm good. You know, I'm all right. No, I'm wretched. I'm a sinner that has been saved by the grace of God. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, says, I'm the chief of sinners. 
He had no problem with saying that. I'm the chief of sinners. But being poor in spirit is seeing your inability to change yourself. I can't do it, Lord. I can't change this thing. Only you can. And when we have that desire and that willingness for change, and we call upon the Lord to have his way in our heart, do you know what? You just give the Holy Spirit an entrance to say, I'm going to do something in you. It's just when we, we hold back. I'm all right. Doing good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. I'm growing. You know, I mean, those are all ways that we deal with that because we're afraid to go further. This first beatitude ends with, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But look at verse 10, the eighth beatitude. What's it say? It finishes, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And whenever you see that sandwiched in between like that, I believe what we're seeing here really is that Jesus is making an emphasis upon these Beatitudes, that really the subject of these Beatitudes is the kingdom of heaven. You want to know the kingdom rules? You want to know what a Christian really should live like and be like? It's right here. I believe that the kingdom of heaven is future, but I also believe that the kingdom of Heaven is also a present reality for a believer. I believe because Christ lives and dwells in us. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. He's the King of my life, and I submit myself to Him as my King. Well, in that sense, the kingdom of God is right here and now. It's in my life because He's my King. Jesus came into this world as King. He ascended back into heaven as king. He sat down on his throne at the right hand of God as king. He's coming back as king of kings and lord of lords. But he also reigns as kings, as a king, excuse me, in the hearts of all believers. Or he should. When we submit submit ourselves to him as lord... I'm just saying, you know, you're my king, you're my lord, you're my master, you're my ruler. Being poor in spirit then leads us to the next beatitude. Or we might say uh, that the word here for true happiness is the word blessedness. It's another way it's translated. And really, true blessedness for a Christian is not affected by the winds of change. Have you ever felt really content and happy and fulfilled, and then the very next day it all went by the wayside? Things changed up. We had a bad day. Did you know, and we do, I'm being real, but I'm just saying that there, are, there is this blessedness that believers can experience that does not have to be dictated by the winds of change. In our life, we can have that blessedness, that happy contentment in our walks with Christ. It's not man that can change this blessedness in our life. People, 
But quite often they do, don't they? Circumstances can't change the blessedness in the life of a believer. You can be locked up in uh, prison for your faith and still experience the blessedness of the Lord. Nothing can take it away from a believer. But I believe the Christian who finds his happiness in other things is going to be disappointed. If you find your blessedness and your happiness in the Lord, it's never going to disappoint you. It's never, it's never going to fail you. You're, no matter what life circumstances are. But look what blessed are the poor in spirit, what it leads to. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Spiritual poverty or humility or being poor in spirit, it leads to mourning. It leads to a heart of mourning. But you know what? When I think of mourning, I, 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 and I think most of us here, we, we don't associate mourning with being blessed or happy. We think of it as a, as a sad event. We've just lost someone. We're grieving and we're mourning, and that's what mourning in it means. Mourning means it means to grieve. It means to express sorrow or sadness. And, and we, that's what we typically associate it with, is with loss. But I believe that what Jesus is conveying here about being poor in spirit, and then blessed are those who mourn, is that this mourning really is a sadness or a sorrow for my sin. It's what I see in myself that would cause me to mourn that would cause me to grieve when I look at my short fail, my failures and my shortcomings and my compromise and my sin and my crossing the line as a believer. It should bring about really a deep mourning for my sin. And when is the last time that we've really just sat before the Lord and in a sense we were mourning because of the compromise in our life? I hate what I see, Lord. I hate that I keep coming back to the same thing. And God is just simply saying, I want to work in you. I want to work in your heart. Come poor in spirit. Come mourning before me with your sin and see what I won't do in your life. See if I won't get hold of your heart in a greater way. It's having a heart, really, of true repentance towards God. Not a worldly sorrow, but having true repentance towards God. Jesus says, when you come with those hearts, those mourning hearts, he says, for they will be comforted. You come that way before the Lord, and the Lord is going to lift you up. God is going to take you out and he's going to forgive you. He's going to restore you. He's going to revive you inside. We all know that. We've all been down the road of repentance and true repentance and know the sense where we go, you know what, just, Lord, you just took a weight off my shoulders and off my heart and mind. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And what will he do? He will lift you up. That's the path to being lifted up. The path to get there can hurt. It's not always easy to to come that route, especially when I, I look at myself and I see how many shortcomings there are. But he says, those that lament and mourn and weep for their sin, let their laughter be turned to mourning. That kind of false sense of happiness in life. Look at the real picture, in other words. See where you're really at. And then come to me. Let that joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourself and I'll lift you up. That's a promise from the Lord. He goes on in verse 5. Blessed are the meek. For they might inherit the earth. I saw some head shaking. That's good. I love it. They shall inherit the earth. Not might. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It sounds like it's a for sure thing. I like that. It's been said, and some of you have heard this, that meekness is not weakness. Have you heard that? It's really, it's strength under control. I think it's a great way to put it. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control. The world says that meek people are weak. People that are meek and humble, they're never going anywhere. You're not going to get ahead in this world if that's the way that you approach things. I remember working for a company years ago, and the only people that made any money in the company were salesmen. It was a paper company. I went to my boss one time and was asking how I could ever get into that position. And his response to me was kind of one that I didn't like to hear, but I actually walked out of the office that day and I thought, you know what? Praise God. He said, you know, he knew I was a Christian. He knew I led a Bible study there at that place of employment. He knew that I wasn't the kind of guy that went out with all the other people after work and went out to have drinks and and all this. And he basically put that right before me and said, because I am uh, not socialized with the rest of the group here in that way and doing those kinds of things, I can just honestly tell you, you're probably never going to get there. I was bypassed for the fact that just... You know, I I didn't want to go that. And you know what? If you make a stand, if you're not stepping on toes to get ahead in life, the world will tell you you're not going anywhere. But you do it in the way of the Lord and the way way the Lord calls us to do it. You know, they're the ones that are going to inherit the earth. The world tells you differently. Jesus himself, when he came, he came what? Meek and lowly riding on the back of a colt. 
He came in as king into Israel on that day. And look how he presented himself. In Philippians 2, verse 6, a familiar scripture for all of us. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. <laughs> no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That's humility. The creator of the heavens and the earth. And then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, the things in heaven, the things in earth, the things under the earth, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you see where humility led our Lord? He went in humility and he is raised up above all else. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And lastly, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Here we see Jesus, who is the master teacher. He's the master of all teachers. He's using words like hungering and thirsting to try and convey a thought. He's trying to describe something to them that they could grab hold of. When you think of being hungry and when you think about being thirsty and your body is just telling, you know, some of us can go for a day without eating. Some of us can't go for an hour. You know, and when we go and when we're hungry, we just feel like we're going to die. That's it. I mean, that's death's at the door when I don't eat. I mean, that's some of us. And that's the thought here when we think about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We're not talking about the righteousness here that has been imputed to you given to your account the day you gave your life to Christ. His righteousness was given to your bank account. You didn't deserve it. He just made you and put you in right standing with him. You became righteous in the eyes of God. That's all a work of God. But we're called to hunger and to thirst after righteousness, which I believe is really speaking more of just our hungering and thirsting for doing right things, doing the right thing, living holy and living right. This righteousness is an attitude, really, of uprightness. It's having, really, an overwhelming desire to do the right thing. Do you have that in your life where, you, where, you know what, you're confronted with choices every single day with things that could take you down a road of compromise, make you give in to things, but do you have this overwhelming desire in your heart to want to do the right thing? That's, the, that's really what we have to ask ourselves the question. 
because this world wants to hammer away at that righteousness that God wants you to have in your life. And if I don't have no desire for it, then it's probably not going to go anywhere. And God, I can't do it apart from you, but Lord, work in me. Change me. Give me that overwhelming desire for righteousness in my life. I think that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not to be seen as something that you obtain, but it's something that you pursue. You're pursuing after it. it not that I'm going to obtain some level someday. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, re- yeah, I, I'm fine, he made it. I, I got all, all righteousness in my life. No, we're pursuing it. It's a lifelong event. There's nine other times that we see this word hungry or hungered in the Gospel of Matthew. But in all of those other cases, it's always referring to physical food and really being hungry. This is the only time that Jesus uses these words here, or these words, excuse me, are used in this Gospel and it's trying to convey a spiritual truth by using something practical that we could relate to. I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for righteousness in my life. They say that, kind of start looking at this a little bit, they say that, and probably different figures, but that after three to five days, your hunger pains begin to diminish. Has anyone tried it? Three to five days, they say it'll start to diminish. It'll start going away a little bit. I haven't tried that one, so I don't know that to be true, but that's what they say. But if you were to allow that hunger for righteousness and that thirstiness for righteousness in your life to diminish over a period of time, over a number of days, and you were to let it go in your life, I believe that eventually you're going to be spiritually dead. There's not going to be any drive within you anymore. It doesn't affect me anymore. I'm not running after it like I used to. And it's really easy. The hunger pains are gone. It's really easy for me just to kind of slide in and slide out of things in life now. Jesus says in chapter uh, 6, verse 33, he says, Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. Seek that first, and then all of these other things will be added unto you. That should be our pursuit. I think it's just a matter of priorities. It's what what are the priorities in my life? Jesus says if you have this hunger and you have this thirst for righteousness in your life, then this is what he says, you will be filled. In other words, if you want more, I'll give you more. 
If you pursue it harder, I'll give you more. But we have to, as believers, humbly, poor in spirit, mourning for sin, coming before the Lord, meek before this world and before the and, and Lord, give me that hunger, that thirst for righteousness in my life. Next week, I thought I was going to cover all the Beatitudes today, and I couldn't get that far. But next week, we're going to look at the next four of these Beatitudes, and we're going to see blessed are the merciful towards others. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. All of that under this rules of the kingdom, if we could call them. These things that really make up the kingdom of God. It's another way to put it. It's how we should be living as Christians. It's characteristics of what a Christian is. This is what a Christian is, Jesus says, right here. This is how we ought to be. This is how we are contrasted to the scribes and the Pharisees as we go through the rest of these chapters here. And we see, but they say, they say, but this is what I say. And it's all the difference.